Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Some people, and I think this is a rarer group, uh, want to do something that's never been done before. You need enormous confidence to do that. Some people want to figure out the meaning of life. Not to put too fine a point on it, figure out what was with that crazy childhood of mine and how do I come to some resolution about it by writing about it? Maybe that could help someone else. And the last motive that um, I kind of discovered among all these artists was wanting to change the world. And I don't mean activists being out in the streets doing protests right now, which is phenomenal, but in some kind of creative artistic way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. 
So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Maida, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it is my pleasure to have you here. So uh, as I was saying you know, before we hit record, I came across your work by stumbling down some sort of internet rabbit hole uh, <laughs> that led me to, to doing research on you know, quizzes about creative types. And suddenly it led me to your TED Talk and then to your book. And my first thought was, how is it that we don't know each other? And how is it that our audience doesn't know about you? So uh, I felt like this is a no-brainer. We had to have you here. But before we get into your work, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped what you've ended up doing with your life? I would say from both of my parents, um, the appreciation for creativity even if you yourself are not a creative person, you can be a or you don't consider yourself or see yourself that way. You can be a cheerleader for somebody else's creativity. And I think as a professor, I'm I'm doing both. I'm in both roles. I'm doing my own creative work, and then I'm cheerleading mm-hmm. my students in their creative work. And I got to tell you, I, sometimes I'm not sure which one's even more satisfying because they're both really satisfying. And sometimes I look at some of my students' writing and I think, yep. The the uh, the student has already surpassed the master, <laughs> and there's that little twinge of mm-hmm. oof, you know. But mostly, um, yeah. just really happy and happy if I had any of that influence. And my parents did that for me. I think of that generation too. It would have been a luxury uh-huh. to indulge in creative things. Um, uh-huh. But I think you can find creativity in in cooking and in um, just you know so many different aspects of life. But it's not in the arts. That would have been a luxury for them, but they went all Mm -hmm. out for me. And, um, that's something I will always appreciate about them. What, um, what did they do for work? And, and, you know, did they ever like, what was the narrative about the potential of, of creativity as a career path? It's not something that I would have thought of per se as a create, as a career path. I started out actually in law school, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And after a year and a little bit, after um, being in a fetal position for a few days, <laughs> I, I, I truly called the 10 people closest to me and said, do I have to go back? And um, they all said, no, you, you really don't have to. And, um, you know, my parents, my mother had been a teacher and then she worked, um, I guess I used to call it a civil servant for the local government. And my father was an accountant. And, but what they did for me was guitar lessons and piano lessons, um, and going to an arts day camp and learning to paint and draw and, you know, bringing my writing to their colleagues to like show it off. You know, it's not to say that any of this was even impressive on my part, but they took so much pride in it. Um, and just encouraged me so much and spent money on things I don't really think they had the money to spend on. So, um, yeah, I don't, but I don't think I got the message that that was necessarily meant as a career path. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think for me growing up in the seventies for, as a woman, it was still fairly, 
I wouldn't say was new exactly, but to become a lawyer, a doctor, et cetera, in that realm was the higher goal because it hadn't been done that much before. So that was kind of where my head was at. And I hated it and made the shift and uh, never looked back. One thing I I wonder is why people lose that sort of creative capacity or that creative curiosity Mm. uh, as they get older. I mean, you're an educator, so we're not getting out of this without talking about education, uh, as you probably know from any conversations you've heard with me. Uh, but this is the the thing I always remember when I think about this. So if you go to the you know self education section of like a Barnes and Noble, um, they have that section where it's like you know education for kids. And what I noticed the first time I ever walked through, I started at sort of first grade and I walked all the way through to twelfth grade, and I noticed just the like drain of creativity that happens in the curriculum as we go you know through school. It almost seems like you know a twelfth grade classroom should look like more like a kindergarten classroom and vice versa. Right, right. You know, I I don't want to be cliched because it's been repeated so often, but Picasso had some statement like every child is born an artist and the problem is how to remain one. And mm-hmm. I think that's so true. And I guess that's why it's become so repeated because I think there's something in people, I think there's a lot of biases against it in pragmatic terms, though in romantic terms, we encourage it. So if people, you know, when people meet authors, even, uh, you know, I've written a book, it's not a bestseller or something like that, but people are like, Ooh, you wrote a book, you know, and it's sort of like, as if it's this sort of mysterious sort of thing that they don't think they could ever aspire to. And so they place it on a certain, uh, level, a certain aspirational sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, Let's say my son was in a band that was doing quite well, but people were sort of like, oh, that's so exciting. And he'll never forget those experiences. But it's also a little bit like, oh, but what's he going to do for work? You know, right. <laughs> so it's sort of that thing that, you know, and of course, there's the pragmatic realities of it. And not everybody can turn something creative into what their work life is. But there's something, some little discomfort with the lack of pragmatism about it and almost like other childish things you should put aside as you get older, I think. I, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a um, a dual way of looking at it, a little bit contradictory. Yeah. You're you know, both a practitioner and an educator inside of a you know higher education. Um, how do we like change that perception? Because it seems more and more now we're placing value on this as a skill set as opposed to sort of rote learning, which we valued probably for the better part of the last two decades. Um, but as we've kind of gone from you know sort of that industrial revolution economy to what Seth Godin refers to as a connection economy, obviously right. this is a skill that's more and more valued. Uh, but how do you begin to actually infuse that mindset into a system uh, like as massive as the education system, which has like all these legacy structures in place, and you know uh, actually get people to accept it? Yes, and question this probably for greater minds than mine, but I will tell you because I teach at Emerson College in Boston and it's an arts oriented school and the majors are mostly in the arts um, in this sort of little bubble. Um, But I will say, I think um, I'm going to put my foot in it, but the extreme rise in tuition costs which is sort of something that seems inexplicable relative to the rise in other costs in society is putting such a premium on 
what will that education get me as a job? Because I just, I'm going to be in student debt for the next two decades. I better make sure this pays off. And I think that's working against liberal arts and the arts because they're not practical mm-hmm. in that kind of a career-focused way necessarily, and not everybody's going to make it as a filmmaker, et cetera. And that yeah. is a little tough for me to observe, um, and it's a little sad to me because I think liberal arts is the higher goal of a college education. Um, but I fully understand as somebody who has been on the paying end uh, when my son went to school, um, what that price tag is like and, and how you really hope that it does pay off financially later. So this is, um, you know, higher education is going through so much turmoil right now. But I don't, I, I didn't think it was meant as a career path so much as like a vocational school might be or a grad school might be. And I hope we don't lose that sort of focus on creative thinking, creative expression, liberal arts. Um, I always say to my students um, when they question the value of liberal arts sometimes that, you know, you, I have, um, you have this, I have this, everybody has this. You have these thoughts pop into your head from something you read, you know, 20 years ago that you just made a connection to something that you just read today or saw on Netflix or whatever it is. And it creates a whole new thought and maybe a whole new path of thinking and I think that's what education's more about than career path. Having said yeah. that, I understand people need to earn a living and that colleges, if they're going to charge so much, need to prepare students for that as well. Hmm. Well, it's, you know, when, when I'm hearing you say that, you know, I, I can't help but think back to sort of the early Berkeley days. And I, I'm looking back at my own college experience. Like, this is so bizarre. I, I write for a living. Um, I'm a podcast host. I never took a writing class or an art class the entire <laughs> right. time. Right. You know? And that was one of my big regrets. I feel like I, I, because I was so set on this, oh, the point of being here is to get myself a job based on what I've done here. I think I missed out on what might have been a much more rewarding experience because I wasn't willing to indulge, you know, in things that made me curious. Like looking back, I was like, man, I really wish I had written for the school newspaper. We had this hilarious humor magazine. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know. And, you know, I, I think that the the sort of standard advice at that point, particularly, I think, when you go to sort of a, a Berkeley or, or, you know, some of these Ivy League schools is, OK, here are the, you know, various like options that you can study. And these are the career paths that it's lead to pick one of these five. And this is what I uh, this is what I had said is that, you know, basically what you're you do is you're forced to choose from the options that are put in front of you, but you're completely blinded to the possibilities that surround you. and. I guess, you know, what would you say to parents who are listening to this about what I've just said? I would say, you know, encourage your student, your child to find that balance. I think a lot of college, certainly at Emerson, certainly at a lot of other places, the extracurriculars are, they're not just important, you know, just to find a job or just to build up a resume, you get some really fantastic experience. You know, if you run a radio program in college, if you are on a magazine, if you are in some kind of social justice movement, these things are super important to what the college experience is. In terms of the classes themselves, um, 
you know, I, I do believe in liberal arts. I do think um, taking creative classes like writing, even if it's out of your normal realm, you know, don't be fully career oriented, maybe do a 70, 30 or something like that. So you can, plus, you know, these are 18 year olds. They don't necessarily know what they want to do. You know, I've changed careers like three mm-hmm. times already. I say that to them a lot too. Don't, you know, this, whatever you do upon graduation, that isn't necessarily what you're going to be doing 20 years from now. It will, you'll learn certain yeah. things that you'll apply later on, but it might be in a de- very different field. And people work for decades now because the lifespan is hopefully very long. So I think taking a little bit of the pressure of purely career orientation and, and learn and expand your mind and learn new ways of thinking about things and seeing things and you know, interact with people that maybe you are different from the kind of people you knew in high school and all the, all that great college stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would never imagine an economics degree and an MBA would lead to this career. Right. Right. Wow. You made it through those. I'm impressed. Yeah. I think I dropped economics after. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the anxiety that your students feel over the future and sort of their mm-hmm. career paths. And you know, I, I think that you know, like there are probably few careers in the world that test your emotional resilience and, um, you know, what, what you're made of, like the, the pursuit of a career in the arts. Like I always tell people, this is not for the faint of heart. Um, it means a lot of rejection. It means a lot of being misunderstood by the most important people in your life. What are the, what are the things that you find that your students outside of the anxiety over the future, what are the, the emotional challenges that they're currently dealing with when it comes to thinking about, you know, creative career paths? They worry, I think, a lot about um, that they might have been like the filmmaker guy in high school. And at least where I teach, they are one of many, you know, and the level of professionalism at such a young age is so stunning to me, mostly because of the availability of technology that didn't exist even a few years ago. I think the competition, I think the idea of how many of us will really make it can I, you know, the writers always worried about, will I get paid? <laughs> you know, so much is expected for free these days from people. Um, will I, so it's about competition. It's about making it. It's about, did I choose the right thing? Oh, now I realize I didn't really want that thing. And I'm kind of stuck in this path. There's a lot of anxiety. Um, there's a lot of anxiety generally right now for that age group mm-hmm. um, for very good reasons. And then I think creative people were all a little wired and <laughs> a little highly anxious. I think a lot of us anyway. So you add the economy and uh, this current administration and a pandemic and this school opening yeah. and how is school going to open. And it's just one huge cesspool of anxiety right now. I, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine. Um, so before we get into uh, the concepts of creative types, I want to ask you about one last thing uh, around sort of your earlier career. You made the decision to leave law school. And I feel like you know, one, I don't know what it is. Like, literally, I don't feel like I know anybody who hates their jobs more than attorneys. <laughs> and uh, it, the funny thing is that in those moments, you know, you chose to leave and so many people will have conti- will basically continue doing something like this for the rest of their life until they wake up one day and they realize, oh, this is not what I wanted to do. Why do you think that you made that choice and why do you think more people don't? Wow. Well, my my sister was the trailblazer. She quit law school four years before I did. My father's so thrilled. Um, 
I, you know what, I almost got to a point and it's a little hard to explain why I had such a, like a visceral almost reaction to it. I think I, I almost literally woke up one day and was like, I cannot put one foot in front of the other and go back here. I don't know quite why I hated it that much. I will say I'm the sort of person who's like part analytical and part creative. And it was sapping all the creativity out of me. And all it was, was for me, felt like a lot of memorization and no creativity, like just stripped of all creativity. And when I looked to um, friends who had become lawyers, and some of them grew to love it, but it was, you know, 80 hours a week, and it seemed um, difficult to become partner, being promised partner track, and then not, you know, it just felt more and more unappealing. I think it's a hard thing. I've never quit anything before, maybe piano lessons when I was, you know, 10 or something, but... It was really hard, but it also felt like almost like my only choice. I, I felt like it was really um, almost like stifling to me. And it's a pity because mm. I had loved my law classes at Brown undergrad, um, and it was like constitutional law, and I worked for a legislator, and I just did really interesting things like that. But that's not what law school is like. And maybe I was too young to say like, oh, you know, get through this. And you might be able to become a constitutional lawyer. You know, I, I just couldn't make it through. People yeah. stick with things they hate um, all the time. Unfortunately, um, they need to yeah. um, provide for a family. They don't have other job options. They were told this is the only route. Um, they think it's going to get better. Um, yeah, I think I think I had the choice to do that. But it's a lot of times people may feel like they don't have choices. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because I think that you mentioned people stick with things that they, they hate all the time. And I think that the, there's a, the opposite of that is that people I've seen, you know, they'll stick with something that they love. Um, and often that comes at a significant cost, you know, uh, yeah. like I think about, you know, what Justine Musk said to me about Elon when I was talking to her about the psychology of visionaries and, you know, what it takes to, do things at his level. And, and she said, this is not a normal life. And she said, you know, there's a reason we call it extreme. And she said, what you don't realize is that people see sort of the, the surface of all of this. She said, but the kinds of accomplishments that people like this have often come at the cost of everything in their life because it's that meaningful to them that they're willing to sacrifice everything else. Yeah. Um, in my book, I have a chapter called, you know, we'll get to this called Game Changers, but it's sort of this single-minded immersion in something. I think it's a certain personality that can do that. I think um, there's some gender component of that um, because mm -hmm. I think once somebody becomes a mom, um, they, they don't feel entitled to do that. Um, you know, if you look at like a Steve Jobs, who we all admire beyond belief, um, you know, he could deny a child was his for a very long time and go do his mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, a lot of the history of artists, of male, white, Western artists, is full of extreme self-absorption and selfishness and sometimes yeah. really horrendous behavior. And thank God for them, because we drew the benefit, but the people mm -hmm. around them, their kids, their wives, their lovers, whoever, mm-mm. <laughs> yeah. They put up with quite a lot. And then you're right, and the artists and the creators sometimes themselves 
sacrificed so much that they didn't get to have um, joys in other areas of their lives, maybe. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell-by-cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, people ask what, what the opportunity cost was of building this. And I said, you know, I gave up my whole 30s. I was willing to live at home with my parents. And then even, you know, layer on top of that surfing, it wasn't until this year when I finally realized I'm 42 years old, I'm lonely, and I've been willing to give up, you know, social connection with friends because I'm unwilling to live anywhere else. And then finally, you know, we moved to Boulder and, you know, I was like, wow, I thought I would never be happy without the water because it was like this sort of, you know, creative fuel. And somehow I have managed to get to a place where I'm actually much happier than I ever was. Wow. Wow. So what made you um, willing to devote your 30s to this, do you think? I'm turning the table. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair question. I, I, you know, it's useful because I'm writing about this for, for, you know, the product launch we're doing right now. I'll tell you what it is. Like I, the, the, the way I was writing about this this morning is that I realized that every action you take leads you either a step in the direction of something that you're dreaming about or away from that thing. Mm. And the problem is that you don't see the, the sort of see, you know, fruit of your labor until years, years in the future. Like most of what I'm experiencing now is the result of things I started doing 10 years ago in the midst of, believe it or not, a recession, yeah. um, with no job post business school. And the way I saw it was that if I went, you know, followed conventional wisdom, I would end up right back where I was because conventional wisdom had brought me to being broke, jobless and living with my parents at the age of 30. Mm. And I thought, okay, you know what? If I did this for the last 10 years and this is where it's led me, then why would I try to do this exact same thing again? Um, I will, you know, gamble on the uncertainty of of what might happen with, you know, doing a, a career in the arts. But 
you know, so all, all that being said, um, where did you, what led to this whole idea and this research, um, around, um, what you call a creative type, the artistic personality profiles? What happened was, uh, that I, as I mentioned, I teach at Emerson college. I had been teaching one liberal arts class where I discovered the essay by George Orwell called why I write. And in it, he gives four different motives of his, and the primary one, or the one that he felt most driven by, was political purpose. And that got me to thinking, oh, what if I developed a whole course around this? Because such a fascinating question to me, I kind of geeked out over it. Why do people create? And I don't mean necessarily within jobs that require creativity, let's say advertising or something like that, but why, why does anyone write that next novel or their first novel, I should say, when there's been a gazillion novels already out there. Nobody's asking for it. There's no certainty about it getting published. And in fact, the odds are against it, right? All these sorts of things work against creative pursuits, but the drive to do it is so strong that people will just keep at it or they'll give it up for a while. They'll find a way back to it. So it got me just initially on a theoretical level, wondering why, you know, where, where's that even come from? And so I put together the course and loved teaching it. And then I thought, you know, I think this could be of interest to more of a general public. I look around myself, struggled with writing a book for several years, friends of mine, uh, other colleagues, some of my students, and kind of took the different motives that were based on you know, just hundreds of artists in all different creative fields that I looked at, um, you know, looking at their journals and their diaries and interviews with them and podcasts with them and, um, you know, inside the actor's studio and all sorts of things about what they had said about their own creativity. And then also looked at the psychology of creativity and what had um, psychologists and sociologists said about it. And it sort of was able to narrow it down to five primary motives within those. Of course, there's plenty of others. People seem to be driven from what I researched by ego, you know, and that's not a bad thing. You know, that that sort of need for recognition and applause and feeling like you're having an impact on someone or by just that love of the thing itself, the love of the creative process, the wanting to just to kind of geek out over little, little details that you can get right. Um, some people, and I think this is a rarer group, uh, want to do something that's never been done before. You need enormous confidence to do that. Some people want to figure out the meaning of life, um, not to put too fine a point on it, figure out what was with that crazy childhood of mine and how do I come to some resolution about it by writing about it? Maybe that could help someone else. And the last motive that um, I kind of discovered among all these artists was wanting to change the world. And I don't mean activists mm -hmm. being out in the streets doing protests right now, which is phenomenal, but in some kind of creative artistic way. And then I, yeah. I thought, partly for fun and people love personality type sorts of surveys and that kind of thing. I just translated those. So the ego driven became the A-lister and the uh, dedication to process became the artisan. Next one, the game changer, the sensitive soul and the activist. Mm, wow. 
Well, let's uh, let's do a deeper dive into to each one of these. Um, you know, so like I think this is why this appealed to me on so many levels because I love mental models. I love thinking about you know sort of where do we fit into all this. And then on the flip side of that, I also hate the idea of being labeled. You know, exactly. Any yes. One thing. But one of the things that struck me most was what you said about A-listers. And you said that, you know, vanity is a motive of immense potency. But you also said that some A-listers act against their own best interest by thinking they'll only be satisfied if they're superstars, not stars, the plays lead, not a supporting actor, a best-selling yeah. author, not a midlist author. And you know what? I've related to that author thing. I've, yeah. I've felt that dissatisfaction, even though I don't think I'm like, you know, like I don't necessarily fall into the, the A-lister um, you know, prototype, but, uh, like how, how do we, how do we navigate that dynamic without losing our minds, particularly in a world where our vanity is on display 24 seven, you know, like, uh, I, you may have read it. Will Storr wrote this beautiful book called selfie. Um, you know, it was a guest here. We're talking about how, what has happened as a byproduct of, you know, social media and, and the culture that we've created is that we've set these very, unreasonable standards for success that have actually had a very toxic impact on our well-being. And yet that seems at the core of what it means to be an A-lister. Yeah, I think that's very true right now. You know, the author Cheryl Strayed calls it being up too high and down too low. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can it can be very um, paralyzing to say, because creativity is such a fragile thing to begin with. And if you say to yourself, if someone says to themselves, well, I'll never write as well as Hemingway. So what's the point at all? You know, if I can't be that, if I can't be Hemingway or Fitzgerald or Virginia Woolf or, you know, fill in the blank, I I guess I'm not destined to do this at all. As if being like really enjoying yourself, doing this work, having some success is just not worth it, you know, because you won't have that level of fame or success. I think that's super toxic. And I totally understand why that's become more the mindset now than ever before with social media and everything else working in favor of fame above almost anything else in society. I think people have to guard against that, you know, and if you go into it thinking that fame and success are the highest aspirations you can have rather than the accomplishment of doing something that you've always wanted to do and actually getting it out there in the world and getting some positive or negative or whatever, some kind of response to it. Um, you'll never do anything, you know? Um, so that can be, I think, super misguided and just, it's a pity to me for anybody to not pursue something they would love doing if they could put those pressures aside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think you have pressures, not just from sort of social media, but the world around you, because it's kind of like you aren't taken seriously as an artist or a creator if you haven't done something that, you know, sets you up. Like I remember up until, you know, 2018 or whatever it is, this was prior to getting my book deal. One of my distant relatives told one of my cousins who I'm very close to that, that, you know, what I was doing was a complete waste of my education. Wow. And, then literally the day my book came out, she, you know, that, that person who said that wrote congratulations on my Facebook wall to this day. My mom is like, who is this? I was like, I'm not telling you, but that person is off the guest list for the wedding. I haven't planned yet. <laughs> yeah. Nor does she, or nor is she aware of the wedding you haven't planned yet. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Orwell did write about this a lot for what he called people driven by sheer egoism 
this, and he felt this as a child, the idea that that sort of you'll never make it can be very, um, oh, it can really break someone's spirit or it can be very motivating to them. Mm-hmm. And I think for those who are very motivated by that thing, like I'll show you, you know, that's, I, I think any motivation is a good motivation that can yeah. be very um, inspiring to some people, but it can be very crushing to others. You know, yeah. everybody knows the the art teacher, you know, maybe in elementary school, not with any negative intent, but comes over and like corrects your picture. And you thought you were just, you know, finger painting. <laughs> And they're trying to get you to, you know, within certain parameters that crushes certain spirits, you know, and and I guess we all have to get a little bit stronger within ourselves and not be so easily crushed. Um, because I, I have a section in my book about some of the hilarious, but not hilarious to the people at the time, sorts of rejection letters, um, famous authors in particular have received. I mean, they're just horrible. They're just, they're, yeah. they're terrible. Um, including, you know, some of the world's most prolific, most famous writers like Stephen King, who got reje- mm-hmm. so many rejection letters for his first novel, Carrie, that in his bedroom, he put one of those spikes like that they use in restaurants for receipts and spiked all the rejection letters on those. And then it became a huge bestseller. So yeah. you, know, you got to stay strong. As they say, stay strong. Yep. Yeah. Well, so you talk about artisans and it, it's kind of funny because, you know, one of the things that um, I saw in my career, you know, you say that those who valued process more than products stayed with it and some achieved great success, but those who'd been motivated by fame and wealth didn't fare so well in the world after graduation. And it took me a long time to to make that shift, but it was when I started to understand that the process was all you could control um, and I, I started really, I started dedicating myself entirely to the process without necessarily focusing on, okay, what are the the results? Like I, you know, I'd spent years trying to like hack my blog to, you know, add plugins, do all this stuff, but none of it worked. Mm-hmm. And then you know, the moment I shifted my focus to saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to write every day. I'm going to get better at, you know, really kind of building the systems to help me do this. The, the things that happened really baffled me. Um, and at the same time, like, even if you commit to that way of being, I know from having done this, that there's nothing guaranteed here. Exactly. Yeah. You're kind of like living with uncertainty, I think. But the, you know, it's that whole thing about um, the journey or the destination, all of that. The the study that you're referencing, uh, which was not a study done by me, but a study done by other experts in the creativity field, where they looked at um, art school students and then looked 10 years later and then said, yeah, those driven primarily by fame and fortune did not fare as well as those who were just really into what they were doing. And I think there is a lesson to be learned about that. It's um, for some people that's very easy because that's just sort of who they are by nature. And for some people, I think they always have an eye on, will this sell? You know, I mean, when I was writing my book, it's, you know, and it's an advice book. So it's sort of, pointless almost if nobody reads it. But um, I did do it partly for a sense of accomplishment because I've always written short pieces and op-eds and columns and that sort of thing. And I really did not think I had it in me. I, I, I thought I didn't have the just that ability to sit with something that many hours a day, honestly. 
um, mm-hmm. and get through that. And when I realized I did, that was a really fantastic feeling. You know, that was super satisfying. And I'm not going to say that satisfaction yeah. would have carried me through the disappointment if it had never gotten picked up or published or whatever. But that in itself felt, it just felt really good. There was this thing I didn't think I could do. It bothered me for years that I didn't think I could do it. And then I did it. And it was like, wow, that's, that's a kind of a fantastic thing to know about yourself. And now where, where else in my life could I apply that, that kind of thing? Yeah, I love that you brought up the where where else in your life could you apply that? Because I think that, you know, I like I remember thinking, you know, okay, I've gotten the satisfaction of having to do this not only with a publisher, but with the same publisher that published Seth Godin and Simon Sinek and all these really amazing people. And, you know, pretty soon it became, oh, those people are so much better than I am on every level. And um, it just you know, it actually, funny enough, it fueled an insecurity. But like one of the things I, you know, I noticed is that the satisfaction that came from it didn't last. but you know, what I saw was that I learned how to structure a very, very complex, big idea and take it from, you know, inception to reality. Right. And that to me was the part that I was like, oh, okay, you know what? Like that is a skill that will serve me for the rest of my life. And yeah, I mean, even you think about, you know, getting to do something like write this book, write a book with a publisher, you might get to do this once in your life mm-hmm. if, mm-hmm. you know, you're not a Ryan Holiday or a Stephen King. Um, Right. And, you know, and, and, and the thing is, like, I realized that I, I almost ruined the experience afterwards by dwelling so much on the fact that, oh, my books aren't selling as well as some of my peers. Yeah, it's always that tension, you know, because ego, I, I don't know, you know, I talk about this with my students. Could you be a creative person without strong ego needs? And you might say, Sure. You could write poetry and put it away in a drawer. That's not a big ego. It is still a big ego because just the fact that you thought your words were worth putting down on paper is already evidence of an enormous ego. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I was kind of um, counterintuitive maybe. So if you think of somebody like an Emily Dickinson, who I included Mm. in the artisan chapter, blows my mind to think she wrote 1800 poems and fewer than a dozen were published in her lifetime. Her ego might actually be way greater than the person who got books of poetry published, you know, because she actually sat down and did it and knew she was good. Now, maybe there's people who are sitting and doing it and they're not so sure they're good. There's evidence that she knew she was good. Um, there's a fantastic documentary called Finding Vivian Meyer, a nanny who it turns out had taken 150,000 pictures. And once um, this filmmaker happened upon them in a, in a flea market and started putting them online, people were like, who is that? That work is amazing. And established photographers were like, wow, she really had an eye and maybe she lacked the confidence or the contacts or didn't just know how to go about getting her work out there or was too shy. Something kept it from getting out in the world until actually, sadly, after she died. But she said in a recording, I know I'm good. 
So I kind of love those people. Maybe they didn't make it in the way that we qualify making it, but they still, they had that ego. They had that ego drive. Yeah, it's funny to to hear you say that. Uh, you know, to, to the, when you said to like, you know, to have the audacity to put your words down on paper, you know, is, is such a huge ego. And I think about, you know, my my sister, uh, you know, asked me to to give a speech at her wedding, and you know, I remember her talking about this. She was like, "I hate being the center of attention," and my attitude was, "Oh." I'm like, I've got a captive audience and I'm a public speaker. I was like, nobody here stands a chance against me. <laughs> so, I mean, it was literally like, I was like, are you kidding? I'm like, this is my moment in the spotlight. I'm like, if I'm going to be here without a date, I'm going to utilize this moment in the spotlight. Um, and yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I don't think that, oh, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I've told this story before, so I won't, you know, bore people, but I literally put a picture of my phone number up on the screen when I opened my speech and said, you know, for all the aunties who want to know when I'm getting married, you can text profiles, pictures, and all other relevant information to my phone number. <laughs> I love and that was how I started the speech. Granted, they're the most useless unpaid employees in the world, um, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. It's, I, I knew that at that point, because inevitably, if you're at an Indian wedding, Right after, you know, every, all the festivities are done and everybody's in cocktail hour. If you're the single you know, brother of the bride, everybody's going to be like, oh, so when are you getting married? So I was like, you know what? I'm going to basically solve that problem now. <laughs> and anytime any of them came up to me afterwards, I was like, there's really nothing for us to talk about. You've been given your marching orders. We'll finish this when you get back to work. Until you guys have produced the result, there's nothing to talk about here. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. But, well, let's talk about the game changer um, idea. Like, I, I love what you said there, aiming to expand the limits of art and in turn, get people to see the world differently. And it was funny because having written audience of one, having dedicated the amount of time I have to learning sort of the art of the interview, I thought, oh, artisan is, is where I fall. But then when I started going through, I, I found that I checked more of the boxes on game changer. Hmm. So you break these up into three categories, right? You say that the game changers are aiming to expand the limits of art and in turn, get people to see the world differently. And I think, you know, a lot of ways I identified with this one uh, more because it was the one where I checked most of the boxes, but you broke them up into three categories, the rebel with a cause, a self-taught artist and a manifesto writer. Can you expand on those? Yeah, I think the importance in being a game changer or a visionary is, you know, there's two ways to look at it in terms of being a rebel. Are you a rebel without a cause, which would mean like, oh, I just don't want to do what was done before, you know, and be just sort of like dismissive of whatever came before you, let's say in music or in art. Or is it that you have a vision for something new and you're informed on the past and you have ideas of how to not be dismissive of it, but go into new territory, you know, just introduce people. You know, when you think of the architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, he was already established, but he he definitely um, had been a game changer from the start. And then he gets the commission to do the Guggenheim Museum in New York City and looks around at the skyscrape, at the sky and says, why Why does it look this way? Why are there so many vertical caskets, is how he thought of skyscrapers. Why can't we do something in the shape of a spiral instead? And he went ahead and did the Guggenheim Museum that way. He sadly didn't live to see the, uh, the final result, but he certainly created the plans for it. You know, got them 
approved, I think, because he was already famous. Sometimes game changers uh, need a certain level of fame to make their mark. But afterwards, the critics were brutal. You know, one said it looked something sort of like a cinnamon bun, you know, (laughs) and some of the painters didn't like the way, well, how are we going to hang our paintings on these sort of rounded walls? So you have to have that sort of vision. He was obviously very steeped in the traditions of architecture, but he wants to subvert them, but for a purpose, you know? So now you look at a spiral building and you know spiral buildings can exist. And that has more more than just a pragmatic meaning. It's more metaphorical about things don't have to be the way they always were, basically. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one really important aspect to that. Um, Another one that you raised was the self-taught artist. Um, You know, the Beatles and a lot of rock stars are such, you know, if I don't mention the Beatles at least five times, I I feel like I'm not being true to myself. They, um, they, they're an interesting um, sort of example in this sense, in so many different ways, but in the sense that they needed George Martin, the producer, to realize their ideas, to put them into action because they were not trained musically. You know, they just picked it up. They were playing like three chords on a guitar originally, right? Same with mm-hmm. Bill and same with so many other rock stars. And then you get to something like um, Sgt. Pepper. Well, they're not able to create those sounds or figure that out. They had somebody who had classical training, actually, and was a producer who could make that happen. So they're the visionaries, and the producer um, has some visionary capabilities as well, but is mostly there almost to make their vision a reality. So they they weren't taught in school. And as a teacher, of course, I think school is so important. But they were able to learn in other ways. And I think a lot of game changes, you know, you always hear about Steve Jobs and all these various innovators who went to college and maybe they dropped out. I love the ones who drop out right before the last semester. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There seems to be a whole history of that. It's kind of like, nah, either I'm bored or I don't need you or I've already gone Uh on inventing something, you know, I've, I've moved beyond. So um, that's another aspect to it. I've actually forgotten the third one that you brought up because there are so many to to the game changer. Yeah, there's the manifesto writer as well. Um, oh yeah, that was like a thing for a while. Like let's let's write a manifesto, and it was very much about um, you know different art movements like the Dada movement, things like that. And then manifestos kind of went away, and they came back in the age of the internet. They're just super fun. Sometimes I have my Students write them um, about, or it's an artist like Marina Abramowicz has written one. It's sort of like, what are your set of beliefs about what art an artist should do? You know, what what is what is it about? What do you believe in? What do you believe it shouldn't do? Where should you not compromise or sacrifice yourself? It's it's kind of a cool thing to know for yourself where you stand on certain of these issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You know, the thing I, I always think about when we talk about sort of people that we call game changers, I mean, literally Bloomberg has a, a documentary series called Game Changers, where it features sort of, you know, icons of, you know, society and business and, and art, like the Jay-Z's and the Elons of the world. Yeah. I always go back to this conversation um, that I had with my old mentor, Greg Hartle, who really gave a brutally honest take on on sort of 
you know, that level of success and said, he said, we don't acknowledge the role that talent and intelligence play in these kinds of accomplishments. And, you know, the thing is that they are the, the these are the stories that make their way into self-help books that we use as sort of our role models. But how many of us are really going to become the next Oprah? You know, how many people are going to be the next Steve Jobs? Like, and he said that, you know, we, particularly in the world of self-help, are so focused on outliers as our role models that we overlook the probability of something uh, happening and we focus exclusively on the pro- possibility of it to our own detriment to the point where people are chasing pipe dreams. I think the game changers, you know, they're, huh, they have that sort of fortitude that I think I personally probably would not have of going for you know, these are the people in the arts, at least. I think it's different in technology. But say somebody like a Jackson Pollock or someone like that who they can go for, they they have it in them to go for like decades without recognition, not making any money from their art or very little, um, doing something that people scoff at. You know, to this day, you'll see people at the Museum of Modern Art in New York will look at a huge canvas of Jackson Pollock's and turn to somebody and go, my kid could do that, you know? And that's the kind of thing he heard in his time. And that's the kind of thing people are saying, I don't know, probably losing track of time, but 60, whatever years later, 70 years later, imagine dealing with that. Like you have to, you have to be tough. You know, you have to be really tough. Mm -hmm. Truman Capote had the idea to take a real life situation and write about it in a way that was using all the techniques of fiction, characterization and dialogue and scene setting and all of that. We're all very accustomed to this now, but that was groundbreaking at the time. And it took two decades with that idea in mind until the New Yorker came around and kind of got on board for him to write the articles that led to, um, in cold blood. Mm. And what the kinds of comments that people would say to him is, oh, you know, writing nonfiction, that shows a lack of imagination. And his, his attitude was your remark shows a lack of imagination <laughs> because you don't understand how vivid and emotional and moving nonfiction can be um, just because it's steeped in reality. So these are really special people who are willing to have the world laugh at them to not make money necessarily for a long time, to be sort of, um, I don't know, pariahs in a way within their own world, um, and then ultimately revered, but sometimes not until after uh, after they're long gone. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because I, I, the person, as weird as this is, the person that comes to mind for me when you talk about sort of, um, you know, being misunderstood is Glenn Beck, like literally, yeah. uh, you know, having having met him, uh, you know, and, and seeing sort of past the, you know, things that are, are on TV. Like I remember meeting his many of the people on his staff and then one of them was the producer for my episode with him. And he said, Glenn is the most misunderstood man in the world. And it was kind of one of those things that really stayed with me all the time because I, I realized like how long are you willing to be misunderstood to, you know, to see this vision that you have? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I do think of all the types it's, it is somebody, you know, it's a funny combination almost of the activist and the artisan of the strong ego to believe, mm-hmm. believe when no one else believes 
and have that artisan's devotion to something to, to really be persistent and stick it out, even if it's not yeah. accepted. So I really, I, I really, really admire, I, I love all the types as if they're loving my children equally kind of thing. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I admire the fortitude of game changers. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the sensitive soul. I, I think that, you know, when I, I saw this uh, and I thought this was particularly relevant in the wake of, of what people are experiencing right now is, you know, resp- you said responding to a painful incident in your life can result in art that's potent and visceral. After some time with a little distance, you might also want to start projects that allow you to reflect on, not just react to a devastating experience. And every time I, I see any reference to that, I said, yeah, the music band Chicago has built an entire career off of nothing but heartbreak. Yes, yes. So many bands. Where would we be without yeah. them? Them in the script. Like yeah, if you listen yeah, to yeah. any of their lyrics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, there's um, there's a few aspects of being a sensitive soul. You know, it's kind of built right into the name. but there's the idea of just like raw expression and being able to express things in such a way. And this is where the talent comes in. So it's not just, you know, vomiting out your expressions that resonates with people and that they can connect with, even if their experience was very different from yours, there's something about the emotions that tie you together with them. And of course, musicians, maybe above all others, kind of have this talent. And then there's the idea that you want to sort of pass it on. Like if I figure this thing out through, let's say, the process of writing a memoir or, you know, a memoir of overcoming drug use, let's say, you know, I'll, I'll get something from that because I'll have figured some things out. It's not just emotional, it's also analytical. And then I put that out in the world and other people might take some comfort from it. They might learn some things from it. They might actually be inspired to take certain actions. So there's sort of a dual effect for oneself and that kind of catharsis and self-expression and then for helping others. And I think a lot of sensitive souls are driven by both of those aspects. Hmm. So let's wrap things up with um, the activist. And then I, I kind of want to look briefly at sort of pros and cons of each one, because I think we've you know uh, described character traits and we've kind of danced around the pros and cons. Um, activists, I think, are particularly interesting in this current moment oh, because, yeah. um, you know, like I, I, I realized that we had a really powerful platform for, you know, being able to do some level of activism. And, and we had this episode that we had put together about what it means to be black in America, you know, basically curated sound bites and we found this Trevor Noah soundbite that we really wanted to use and we're like we I remember we we contacted Viacom they gave us a quote on the media licensing request and we're like this thing is $4000 for 2 minutes of audio I'm like oh. we cannot afford that um and we're like how do we ever come up with the funds for this only because it's important to us to get this message out and we're like we know if Trevor actually heard this he'd probably say yes but probably uh, so right yeah. And it's so painful because it's such a beautifully done piece. Like our audio engineer, you know, worked tirelessly to make it, you know, breathtaking. And we're just like, okay, what's the, you know, option here, but let, let's, let's talk about, you know, activism and, and the form of art. Yeah. You know, the obviously so important at this precise moment in history. So there's kind of on the ground, direct activism, as I think I mentioned, uh, protesters right now, let's say, um, voting, legislating, but then there's people who want, who are creatives, but they want to gear their creativity towards activism. 
I mentioned Orwell at the start and the reason he felt, he felt like in a different time, he might've been more motivated by ego, more motivated by just the beauty of words or the joy of telling a story. But because he lived through, I mean, this is pretty amazing, World War I, World War II, Spanish Civil War, fascism and Nazism. That he personally felt, and there's an implication, maybe he felt it towards others, that he couldn't, you know, like, let's say, write a romance novel during those kinds of times. But those times are always, right? Like, there's never a non-sort of tragic (laughs) time in the world or things that really, really need to change. But some moments really stand out as, as, as it is now. And so the question is, can art make a difference in the world? What kind of art can, and what are you hoping to achieve through it? And a lot of activist artists, from Orwell to John Lennon, and uh, someone like Beyonce, who I would have originally thought of as an A-lister, but has become more politically active over the time, um, they go into it with the belief that I'm spreading the word and kind of getting people conscious of certain things that are happening in the world and doing it in a way that, um, you know, is musical or is through film or is through a novel. So it's easier to take in and somebody could relate to a character maybe rather than a news report of something. And then maybe they'll take action. So it's, a, it's kind of like one step removed but it gives artists an opportunity to do something they love and feel like they've had an impact on the world. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. of all the different types for any artist, any creative person who might occasionally say to themselves, what's the point, you know, could we can all get into that sort of very dark mindset about what's the point of what we do? Does it make an impact? I think the activists are, are, they have the answer to that question. Um, It's still Bugs them sometimes, maybe, is it having the impact they want, but they at least have a very clear goal of what they would like their art to accomplish. And that's really something. Mm, wow. Yeah, you know, it's like, it seems like that there, you know, I think you you kind of highlighted the pros and cons of each one of these these uh, artistic types and, and personality types and uh you know, the, the ups and downsides and you know, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause I mean, to me, I think that, um, who was it? Josh, uh, I don't remember his last name is the, the guy from how I met your mother. I remember him having this conversation with, uh, uh, Sam Jones, you know, on the off camera podcast. And he said that a successful career in the arts is rigged for dissatisfaction. <laughs> well, <laughs> he might have a point that way though. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this is just a, a you know hotbed of, of mental health issues that <laughs> both you know fuel yeah. like you know fuel and hip, inhibit your ability to create. Like you know, you kind of look at it. It's I remember um, Justine was saying like you look at many creative types. It's like depression, ADHD, anxiety, like this whole host Absolutely. of just you know psychological bullshit that comes mm-hmm. with it. You know, I, I remember once telling a friend, I was like, man, I'm like, I wish I could just have a fucking normal life. And he told me, he's like, your life will never be normal. Yeah, but it's kind of like that failed a long time ago. It might be good to know that at least. Right. You know, yeah. the connection between mental health issues and creativity, um, the link between the two that seems, 
you know, like maybe we just know that through common sense or through observation or self-observation. There's a lot of studies on that coming out now, and it is absolutely connected. There's a little bit of a chicken and the egg sort of discussion about it. Even putting people under MRIs and seeing which parts of the brain light up, you know, under an MRI with like a little keyboard and, you know, looking at sort of um, the biochemistry of creativity, which I'm not an expert on, but I really love reading about it. I included a few studies. The idea that mental health issues, sometimes seem to go with an artistic personality who is more sensitive, you know? So if you're out there in the world being sensitive to everything that's going on and you can't just turn away from it, and then you're living with these sensitivities because you're putting them into your artwork, you could see how difficult that can be for some people, right? And the other side to that is, and this seems to be mostly with writers, um, you know, a lot of history of, unfortunately, of drug abuse and even suicide with a lot of famous writers, um, often sometimes because they felt like their talent had kind of disappeared on them and they couldn't get it back again, or they yeah. were bipolar or they were schizophrenic, you know, Virginia Woolf was having just horrendous headaches and hearing voices. So we have to sort of, we're diagnosing after the fact, which always might have some you know, inaccuracy in it. But the fortunately, people used to keep diaries and write a lot of letters. And it's pretty easy to look at some of the artists from the past and see what their struggles were. Um, so yeah, there's, there's definitely that connection. It's not an easy life. A lot of artists have had you know, really challenging lives, but think of the impact they've had on, you know, us, not just for one performance or one day, but sometimes for centuries even. I mean, that's phenomenal. Um, I think that's yeah. really exciting to think about. Hmm. Wow. Um, this has been fascinating. I feel like it's a very, very deep rabbit hole. So uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to you. I want to finish with uh, one final question, which I know I've you know, you've probably heard me ask, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What makes somebody unmistakable is that they bring something to their friends, to their society, to their class, whatever it is that is distinctly theirs, and that you couldn't say that about any other person. You know, there's something about the way they say things, there's something about the way they interact, there's something creative they brought into the world that is unmistakably theirs and somebody equally talented, equally compassionate, equally a good teacher would not bring that same thing into the world. And so it's, you know, being the individual that offers some very specific and unique thing. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people uh, find out more about you, uh, your work and everything you're up to? And, uh, you know, I know you and I talked about this pretty soon. We're going to actually have an artistic personality type quiz on our own page. That would be awesome. So they can find me at metawagner.com. So it's M-E-T-A-W-A-G-N-E-R. And uh, they can buy my book, What's Your Creative Type? Um, every, I was going to say everywhere where books are sold, but primarily online right now, or certainly ask your indie bookstore and let's support them. And um, see me, Google me, look me up, do it all. <laughs> awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.